This week's Institute of Ideas podcast from a Battle of Ideas archive is called Can Conservatism Survive the 21st Century? and was recorded in 2011. The chair is Neil Davenport. Okay, so to uh, introduce the panellists, on my far right over here we have Greg Lindsay. Greg Lindsay is founder and executive director of the Australian think tank, the Centre for Independent Studies, one of the leading uh, right-wing think tanks in Australia. Steve Davis is uh, education director for the Institute of Economic Affairs and author of the Dictionary of Conservative and Libertarian Thoughts. To my right here, Dr. Kieran O'Hara, Senior Research Fellow, University of Southampton, author of Conservatism uh, and After Blair, and he was also the author of Tomb Raider 4, the best-selling computer game of 2000. Next to Kieran, we have uh, Tim Montgomery. Uh, Now, Tim is the co-editor of Conservative Home and co-founder of conservativeintelligence.com, member of the advisory board for Centre for Social Justice, and he uh, was quite keen to point out that when David Cameron talked about RF jets returning back from Iraq, he wished they could bomb a conservative home at some point. So he's quite clear uh, there's a bit of uh, uh, blue water between Tim and David Cameron. Finally, to my far right, but not, not literally, we have James Panton, politics tutor uh, at Harford College, Oxford, and the Open University. Uh, Polyteacher at uh, Stowe School, Buckingham, uh, and also co-founder of the Manifesto Club, think tank and pressure group that aims to challenge the petty hyper-regulation that we see uh, in society. And one of the first campaigns they organised against uh, was Conservative uh, Boris Johnson's introduction of the alcohol ban uh, on the tubes. Okay, so let's get underway. So I think the first question... I want to raise, uh, and I'll start with Stephen. How would we define conservatism, first of all? Well, in some ways, this question of how to define conservatism is one of the great conundrums um, of political discussion, really, because if you look at the number of parties, movements, and individuals who've been generally accepted to be called conservative over the last 250, 300 years... Uh, it's hard to see anything that they have in common. Some have been pro-market, some have been anti-market, some have been traditionalists, some have supported change, some have been nationalists, others uh, not, some have supported imperialism, others have been opponents of it. So you might conclude that it's really a kind of um, empty uh, expression that has no real content. It's simply that label that's given to one side in political argument in any country at any given time. But I think actually that's false, and there's a number of things I think that would define a kind of substantive content for conservatism as a modern phenomenon. And the key thing is it is modern. You do not have conservatism in pre-modern traditional societies. That's because I would say that the essence of conservatism in the last 250 years or so is a reaction to the experience of loss and certain other features of modernity. It's a reaction against uh, a number of what I think are crucial elements of modernity, Uh, constant and rapid change, for example, a movement towards individuality, the breakdown of a lot of traditional social structures and social orders, social ideas, uh, and also at the same time movements towards uh, greater collective control or direction of personal life. It's a reaction against that as well. And this obviously can take a different form in different times and places depending upon what is perceived to be the primary threat, if you will, the primary uh, thing. Because conservatism, I think it's fair to say, although it has 
ultimately a positive agenda is essentially a reactive ideology. It's a reaction against other kinds of political movement or ideology or social and political developments. Uh, and these precise content that conservative movements or parties have, I would argue, tend to be defined by whatever it is that they're reacting against. Now, what this means is that historically there's been a number of major, what you might call, political realignments in which uh, conservatism has undergone a ma major change in terms of how it's defined. Uh, one of these took place at the end of the 19th century, where conservatism changed from being essentially an ideology which defended the ancien regime against, broadly speaking, free market and individualist liberalism, an ideology which defended the alliance of throne and altar and things of that sort. It changed from being that into being either a form of revolutionary conservatism, uh, of the kind you found in, say, the Action Française in France, or it turned into what it has been predominantly ever since, which is essentially a form of moderate liberalism, uh, which defends a broadly free market economy, but combined with traditional social uh, and cultural institutions of one kind or another. I'd say that, by the way, my view is that if you look at the politics of the modern age intellectually, the way to understand it is that there are three broad clusters of ideas which feature around the three main sort of political responses to or features of modernity, individuality or individualism being one of them, equality being another, uh, equality and ethical collectivism, that is. Uh, and thirdly, what I've just very quickly sketched and outlined, uh, the kind of reactive policy of conservatism. So I'd say that that is what it is, essentially. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Greg, what's your take on conservatism? Uh, we're living in interesting times, as we all know by now, that this is a curse, not a blessing. The tectonic plates for the world of economics and commerce, of politics and power, are shifting, in a sense, uh, are shifting in a sense they always have been. But what we have witnessed over the past two decades has been faster and more profound than any previous changes. If you thought the, end of, uh, the history had ended in 1989, you'd have to think again, up to 9-11. If you'd believed the West political and econo economic system had won, the rise of China must puzzle you. If you'd hoped that Europe had left its old divisions behind, the Euro crisis would have shaken that confidence, confidence as well. The fiscal agonies of so many countries in the West are already leading us into uncharted territory with seemingly clueless explorers at the head of the expedition. Uh, interesting times indeed. The rise of Asia, the emergence of radical Islam, the imperial overstretch of the United States, the troubles in global markets, uh, the revolutionary changes in technology and communications, improvements in global health, life expectancy that drive the rapid growth of the world's population. In previous areas, such developments would have defined whole centuries, but they are now happening in front of our eyes. Under such circumstances, what can conservatism still mean? Conservatism is the very opposite of the world around us. By its very name, conservatism is a, world, is a word that implies a certain slowness. It's about preservation, sticking to traditions, holding off change. But how do you hold off change in a world that's changing faster than ever before? What changes does a conservative resist? And what does he, what does he welcome? Or put differently, what distinguishes a conservative from a progressive or from a reactionary? It's, just, it's not just a problem for, for today's conservatives to define what they're all about. It's a question that equally applies to their ideological foes. When social democracy formed as a political movement in the 19th century, the less political values were quite different from the less values today. A few, a few years ago, my institute published a paper arguing that the historical left once supported political liberty, egalitarianism, internationalism and progress, but that today's left is happy to cuddle up to dictators, defend privileges of the few, reject globalisation and distrust new technologies. They've said goodbye to the Enlightenment. The authors claimed that the old values of the left had slowly migrated to the right so that the conservatives today are more likely to be Democrats, free traders and open to technological innovation. If the authors are correct, there may, may well be quite a few conservatives out there who are actually quite progressive, and vice versa, 
and maybe social democrats out there who should really be called reactionaries. In any case, and in, and in political practice, conservatives and social democrats have often become virtually indistinguishable. Are there any differences between David Cameron and Tony Blair, George Bush and Barack Obama, or Angela Merkel and Gerhard Schroeder? They're all big government tax and spend politicians. They're all social democrats. No wonder that Hayek dedicated his famous book, The Road to Serfdom, to the socialists of all parties. In Australia, it's even more complicated. Our Conservative Party is actually called the Liberal Party. But for all that it matters, it's really just a conservatively-dressed Social Democratic Party. And on the other hand, we have a Labor Party. But it was this very party which, a quarter of a century ago, initiated some of the most liberal economic reforms in our country's history. Let me confuse you a little more. Our former Labor Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, called himself a fiscal conservative before being elected. But when he then discovered that showering the electorate with money might make him even more popular, particularly during the financial crisis, he quickly reinvented himself as the great dragon slayer of so-called neoliberalism. Much of this money was wasted and helped lead to his downfall. On the other side, a few years ago, the Liberal Party was led by a politician who had started his political life in the Australian Labor Party before switching sides. Uh, quite appropriately, the politician in question has now embarked on a diplomatic career. For all his sins, he is now Australia's ambassador to the EU. As these, as these episodes demonstrate, Political labels have become meaningless if you can call yourself whatever you like, whenever it suits you, without having, to have, without having to blush. So what does it all mean? In reality, in Australia, we've been governed for nearly 30 years by two large parties that are both conservative, social democratic parties with the occasional but extremely healthy dose of classical liberalism. Perhaps in essence, that's the crucial ingredient of successful conservatism. It's the kind of conservatism that includes a respect for property rights, individual freedom and the rule of law, is perhaps not quite classical liberalism in its pure form, but is at least inspired by it. It's a conservatism that has understood Hayek's wisdom that our knowledge is limited and that government often does not know best because it cannot know best. It is here where Hayek's liberal theory of dispersed knowledge and Burke's conservative idea of the little platoons might meet. And so to answer the question whether conservatism can survive, perhaps it can, but only if it's a liberal conservatism and not just social democracy in disguise at a time when we're facing a crisis of government, governance and government overstretch in so many Western countries, the basic tenets of liberalism need to help redefine a 21st century conservatism, or frankly, a 21st century of any form of government. Thanks. Okay, thanks very much. I think um, Stephen and Greg have raised some interesting tensions within conservatism, particularly the difference between being a conservative and being a reactionary, uh, with the defence of tradition, but also the support for the free market, which is often quite quite dynamic and which can undermine tradition. So, uh, Kieran, with just that in mind, what, what does conservatism mean to you? Um, yeah, uh, I mean, we're already getting a sense of what a, a confused area, area this is and uh, how party matters and, and philosophical matters kind of tend to get tangled up. I, I, I did like Steve's historical view on this and I agreed with every word of it. Let me, let me just take that a bit further. So Steve imagined this kind of triangle of the kind of progressive individuals, the um, egalitarians and the reactionary conservatives. We can ask the question, well, okay, if we abstract away from the political arguments at any particular moment, which all have their own individual uh, properties and their uh, individual characteristics, what does that reaction look like? And I think the fundamental thing to say about the conservative reaction to these the progressive alternatives are that they focus the conservative focuses on human fallibility it's a, it's a 
it's, it's a philosophy of fallibility in, in, in two senses. Right? So there's one sense, which is that we're all, you know, we're all human beings and we are all fallible. We're, we're, we're not perfect. We're not even perfectible. And, in fact, we're, we're only occasionally rational. Even, right? So there's that kind of human fallibility. But we can take that a little further and, and talk about uh, the fallibility of our institutions and our knowledge base. And there's, there's a, a great line. It was in the, the, the first line of the final paragraph in the final book written by Aldous Huxley, which is that uh, thought is crude, matter unimaginably subtle. And that's a, kind of the, that's a very conservative thought, that however clever we think we are, we can't describe our extremely complex and extremely dynamic society uh, well enough to be able to kind of drive it in particular directions. There will always be unintended consequences of our, of our uh, legislation and our institution building. Some of those consequences will be positive, some negative, but there's a risk involved in change. Uh, so for the conservative, the conservative emphasizes that it's much easier to destroy value in society than to create it, okay? So in Northern Ireland, for example, it took about two years to, for Northern Ireland to become almost uninhabitable and 20, 25 years to build it back uh, into a normal part of the United Kingdom. This, the slide into chaos is much quicker than the institution building out of chaos. So the Conservative prefers societies and institutions that have evolved, not ones that have been created or structured or developed or designed for particular purposes. The idea is that something evolves around the people in it and isn't created for the people in, in particular ways. The Conservative prefers actual societies and the concrete benefits they bestow to abstract theories, theoretical societies, and the potential benefits they bestow around the corner. So the Conservative would prefer the London of 2011 to the utopia that we could have around the corner if only we did X, Y, and Z. Okay. That, that's not to say that the Conservative opposes change. All societies change. You can't stand in the way of change. It's madness so to do. But as a, a, a small-c Conservative government moves to uh, change the world in, in, in response to various problems to solve, in, 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 in all the various uh, issues that governments have to address, change should have three particular characteristics. First of all, it should be incremental. Right? It should be in slow steps, small steps. Secondly, those steps, where possible, it's not always possible, where possible, those steps should be reversible. So we always ought to be able to go back quickly, if need be, if possible. Sometimes that's not possible, but where possible, we should, we should keep an eye on that. And thirdly, any change should be rigorously evaluated, not just for the effect that the change is intended to produce, but also uh, for looking for unintended consequences. And finally, let me just reiterate a point about what conservatism is. does also subtend the question what conservatism isn't. Neil suggested absolutely correctly that we shouldn't just think of conservatism as whatever the Conservative Party does. It's quite possible to be a conservative outside of the Conservative Party, and it's quite possible to be in the Conservative Party and not to be conservative at all. Right. So let's not have that confusion. The other confusion we ought to try and avoid is that conservatism is not just free market neoliberalism. Uh, uh, Greg was absolutely right to point to the fact that these, these two movements quite often move in the same direction against egalitarian philosophies. However, they are distinct. And for the conservatives like free markets, 
but they don't want to apply them to uh, every situation and they don't see them as the all-purpose solution for every problem. Okay, thanks very much. Um, James, a more radical take on conservatism is that it's often seen as a powerful ruling class ideology and uh, the Conservative Party are often seen as a very kind of powerful force in society which articulated uh, ruling class privilege and power and consolidated ruling class privilege and power. I know I'm saying very much like a, a 1970s radical lefty, but I think I just want to get this in. I mean, is, was that something that you would subscribe to in terms of an understanding of, of conservatism? Ed West in The Telegraph this week wrote a slightly angry article uh, challenging that viewpoint, saying that conservatism is not, is not about simply ruling class power and ideology. What, what yeah. do you think? What's your take on it? Well, I mean, I think... I mean, I think between the, 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 the kind of the thick comments people have made so far, there is a very good and, and quite clear overview of what conservatism is. And I don't think it's dismissive uh, to say that, that, of course, conservatism is uh, inevitably tied up with the ruling class and, and the structures of society as society currently exists, because, of course, an interest in preservation of authority, an interest in the preservation of uh, tradition, a, a belief that change... Uh, although inevitable, should be instrumental. Uh, the reactive content of conservatism, which I think has been really nicely expressed in, in, in what a couple of the previous speakers have said, which means that actually, on one level, the content of conservatism can change over time because the meaning of what it is reacting against and the meaning of the forms of changes and the forms of uh, radical or progressive ideologies that it's responding to are changing in different contexts and in different times. But, I mean, there is definitely a sense in which conservatism is all about, uh, uh, historically over time, a preservation of uh, certain forms of hierarchies and traditional institutional structures. I think what I'd add to what the previous speakers have said is kind of three quick but, but slightly different ways of looking at it. The first one is we've got conservatism as a coherent ideology, which although the actual you know, conservative views on, say, the free market can change, depending on what the free market is doing at different times, depending upon the extent to which the free market is uh, ripping up communities or is uh, embedding a certain structure of social order and social discipline, uh, which is uh, uh, enabling us to preserve and organise certain structures and institutions within society. So although the content can change in that way, what you have is a combination of that belief and support for tradition, for authority, for a certain kind of paternalistic uh, authority and gradualist change, with, I think, hugely importantly, a big dose of pragmatism. And I think one has to recognise that the reason that conservatism has been such a powerful historical force is that pragmatism, that capacity to have certain principles, certain beliefs, certain moral values. I mean, conservatives very often would suggest that conservatism is not an ideology precisely because it's not rationalistic, because it's not ideas-driven. But what conservatism has been able to do consistently throughout the 20th century is to recognise the point at which there's a need to give up certain of those principles or dilute down certain of those principles or change tack or change direction in terms of what it is about society that can be defended, in terms of, in other words, what it means to actually seek to preserve and conserve a certain kind of social order, a certain kind of social structure. That, I think, is where, just to quickly think about the broader context of, you know, conservatism in the present, that is where I think, um, in your introduction, you suggested, you know, that kind of clash of ideologies, clash of principles which dominated 20th century politics is quite important, because in that sense, I think, not only can conservatism not survive the 21st century, I think it died in the early 90s as an ideological 
force. And I think although you've suggested we don't confuse conservatism as an ideology with conservatism as the Conservative Party, it is nonetheless that as an ideology it was embedded in certain social institutions and institutional structures which had a real depth and appeal to people in their lives. You know. So the fact that membership of the Conservative Party in, in 1980 was 1.2 million and membership of the Conservative Party in 2008 was 0.17 million. You know, in other words, in your local Conservative branch, if you had 70 members in 1980, uh, in 2008 you would have 10 members. I mean, that's a pretty drastic and remarkable drop, particularly for a party which, above all other parties, always was pretty consistent in its strength. The fact that the other social institutions, uh, you know, the Church of England, the Tory party at prayer, you know, the Rotarian Club, the Mother's Union, the, the Royal Family, you know, all of these institutions of conservative authority have disintegrated and been emptied out, I think is significant because what it means is that there really isn't that purchase for the ideological principles of conservatism. And the other side of that is precisely because as a reactive ideology, as an ideology which defines itself against visions of social change, in the absence of any great programs or projects for social change, the actual content of conservatism can come to seem pretty vacuous. Why is it that one would defend, say, the family as a hugely important social institution if it's not the case that people are, uh, a feminist movement is attempting to uh, rip up the family and radically transform the family? Why would one defend it? And what you end up with then is, is I think, rather than a pragmatic approach to society, actually a very managerial and instrumentalist approach to society, which is different to pragmatism, because the actual content of those moral principles and political principles are, are almost entirely evacuated out. So what you're left with is a, is a kind of small-c conservatism, which I think can maintain an insecurity about social change, a very profound cultural trend at the moment, that antipathy or uncertainty about a human subjective action, that notion that actually the possibility of human beings asserting their agency on the world and transforming it, I think society is dominated by a a tendency to feel very insecure and uncertain about that, but it doesn't take any coherent or mobilising ideological form as conservatism as a political ideology once did, and I don't think it can in the future. Okay, thanks very much, that's very useful. Uh, Tim, just to throw a bit of confusion on this, I mean, um, James was referring to conservatism as an ideology, but something like Edmund Burke would always reject that conservatism is an ideology, and, was, and he actually said the wise conservative travels alight. Uh, we don't want too much ideological baggage because we, you know, we want to be pragmatic and be able to respond to changes in society. Well, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I've always seen conservatism uh, much more as a disposition than, than an ideology, and uh, very much building on what I think Kieran has already uh, shared with us. Um, it is, I think at its heart, is this worry about uh, utopian schemes and a great belief that actually we are a very fallible uh, people. And um, I think conservatives would look at some of the big projects that the state has been at the heart of in recent years, the Eurozone, uh, the Iraq War, uh, government borrowing, and feel confirmed that big projects are dangerous things. To say, though, that it's all reaction, that there isn't some sort of set of beliefs of conservatism, I think, would be, would be wrong. And I, I completely accept that the Conservative Party and conservatism are different. Uh, but I think it is interesting to note the, uh, how the political parties that either formally or informally purport to represent conservatism carry on. 
And for conservatism, and I think one of the best writers of, of modern times on conservatism is Michael Novak, the Catholic uh, theologian. And as a way of understanding conservatism, you know, he has said you know, there are three key uh, forces in society. There's the government, uh, there's the market economy, and then there's the moral cultural sphere, the, the, the family, the church, or the small platoons that, that Edmund Burke would, would talk about. And conservatives just conservatives believe in all three of these things. Uh, you know, the great difference between us and libertarians is that we see a very important role for government, um, but we don't support the size of government that a socialist would. Uh, we are free marketeers, but we want the market held back in, in hundreds of different ways. And we believe in a moral cultural uh, sphere. We believe that what lies between the individual economic actor and the state are incredibly important. And that, in a way that I think has failed to resonate on the street, but is nonetheless a hugely significant development in conservatism, is what I think David Cameron is talking about with his, his big society. Um, it may not work as an electoral concept, but as an idea of trying to say that conservatism is about the relations between all of us as individuals and that our relations aren't just economic and contractual with the state um, is, I think, profound. And I think that is why Labour has its blue Labour movement and other people are examining it quite uh, closely. I will just sort of end by saying... Uh, I think there are, is a conservatism of great weakness, which I think is beginning to, a lot of people are uh, uh, sort of addressing now, is we have, I think, always been a little bit shy of advocating a set of emotional and moral beliefs. Um, the left, you know, have, you know, the number of times I meet people on the left and I ask them why they're on the left, you know, it's as simple as we care. You know, we're compassionate, we, you know, it's, it's, it's brotherly love. And conservatism, the, you know, the very fact that we have managed to get ourselves into the position whereby we have vacated that territory, that we go into every election with one hand tied behind our back because we haven't got a message to counter the left's view that they fight poverty with the state. David Brooks, one of my favorite columnists at the New York, the New York Times columnist, has talked about this is a, being a grand opportunity for conservatism to launch a great restoration, as he calls it, and that there are things that conservatives really believe. You fight poverty through family, work, education, not the power of the state. That conservatives believe in living within your means, that we need to reattach the link between effort and, and, and reward, that we need to reconnect capitalism with community. Um, these, I think, are incredibly eternal beliefs. They're incredibly powerful. They're incredibly well-supported. And I think uh, conservatism's future lies in, in articulating this as well as the reactive element that I think has been, been well uh, covered by my fellow panellists. Okay, Tim, thank you very much. Stephen, there is a real mood in society, I think particularly from uh, liberal sections in society, whereby there's a very shrill shouting down that anything that has a whiff of conservatism. It's something I've kind of, almost in a very unthinking, uh, very unthinking way. I mean, for somebody on the left... I've been thinking more and more about certain things have been lost in British society as a, as a result of the demise of conservatism. Is, is that something that you see, something that you interpret, that certain things, certain important things have been lost in British society as a result of the decline of... Well, no, I, I don't accept that, because I don't accept, actually, that there has been a demise of conservatism, um, because I think, in one sense, 
there's always going to be a conservative uh, tendency within modern societies, in my view. What I think people are mistaking for demise of conservatism is actually a realignment that's going on at the moment, essentially. Uh, we've had 40 to 50 years where the basic division has been between one group of people who combine social and cultural conservatism with support for free markets and another group who combine support for broadly redistributive and interventionist economic policies with cultural individualism. And I think that uh, we're starting to see a realignment in a more, perhaps more coherent direction uh, between one side that is broadly, consistently pro-individualism, um, both in terms of supporting markets generally to some degree or other, and being culturally uh, progressive. And on the other hand, perhaps a kind of more consistent conservatism of the kind that uh, Tim was talking about, which will be uh, more wary of markets and their social implications, I think, uh, and also more explicitly culturally conservative. And so I think that um, there's certainly a strong reaction against the Conservative Party, I think, at the moment, and against a certain kind of economic policy, which is identified as essentially giving out goodies to privileged groups, mm -hmm. right, rightly or wrongly. But I don't think there's a reaction against conservatism as touch. And Tim mentioned, for example, the growth of Blue Labour, uh, Maurice Glassman and people like that, uh, and also there's growth of people like Philip Blonde. I think there's actually quite an interesting revival of a certain kind of conservative thought and politics right now, one which I don't agree with, but which I think is actually uh, a growing force in British um, life at the moment. Okay, thank you. Kieran, Stephen talks about the realignment of conservatism. Uh, what kind of things would you like to see conservatism move towards as a way of repositioning itself in society? Well, it's a good question. Uh, it's, in a sense, what we need to do is identify what we value in society uh, and then try and preserve it. It's as simple as that. Uh, Tim, uh, simple and as complicated as that, uh, Tim gave some very uh, uh, nice examples of how um, it's important for the Conservatives to reclaim that kind of moral stance, that, that moral position which it, it uh, vacated, I think quite almost without expecting to. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, for all, her, for all her faults, was a very deeply moral person and uh, she thought that the reforms of the early 80s would, would usher in a much more uh, moral world where there'd be many, much more philanthropy and, and so on. And she was rather surprised and not really pleased when it didn't happen. So I think Tim's point about reclaiming that moral uh, discussion is, is a very good idea. I think also what we need to do is get into a position where you know, Burke's little platoons are empowered and mobilised. And again, this is Tim's point, that we have this kind of Goldilocks idea that we don't mind government, we just don't want too much of it, and we, 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 we don't mind uh, other things, we just don't want too much of anything, really. That, 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 that's exactly the right sort of thing to say. So there are lots of things that, for example, Cameron is moving towards that, that, are, that I'm fully supportive of. One is the Transparency and Open Data Initiative, so to put out a lot of government data on the web, uh, partly to hold government to account, fair enough, but also to enable the individual and individuals to gain a, a much richer picture of their own community, to enable them to develop their own institutions and their own services using technology uh, in all sorts of creative ways, uh, will be much more empowering of individual, for individuals than simply legislating in one way or other. Let's just give people the knowledge to do what they want to in their own communities. Uh, so I think transparency is a very important idea. So also is the... Cameron idea of, of uh, uh, localism and the, uh, the big society stuff, which started life with even less 
even less uh, electoral-friendly name of the uh, post-bureaucratic age. Uh, we now big society is better, but still hasn't quite <laughs> kind of made it as a slogan. But that kind of thing, devolving power, I think, seems to be uh, the way for conservatism to go in the 21st century. Okay, thanks very much, um, Tim. You're keen to stress the difference between conservatism and the Conservative Party very forcefully, and I think you've made some really useful points on that. So, if we can think of perhaps, I mean. We live in a time where there is intense hostility towards change. So you can still say that there is, there is a conservative mindset out there, but it takes, a, it takes a very different form, and it almost bizarrely takes a radical form in terms of environmentalism, perhaps as, a, as an example of a form of conservatism that appears to be radical. And so we're in this odd position where radicalism is now taking a very conservative form in that sense. You've also written about risk society shows that how conservatism, you know, can make can make a, a, an attempt to realign itself. What, what, what do you think? What do you think about that? On the, on the environment, I think you know there's a, there's two. If you ask conservative members what they think of David Cameron's position on the environment, uh, his position on climate change is is heavily resisted, and uh, I think they are right to resist that. Uh, I began my talk a little while ago by saying, you know, three of the big uh, things that government have tried to do in, in recent years, Iraq war stimulus, um, Eurozone have, have come, you know, come, have, have gone wrong. And I would say the same would be true of government's efforts now to tackle climate change. Um, I think, uh, I just don't think governments are going to be capable of doing it and they're going to distort uh, the economies in the, in the process. That doesn't mean I don't think conservatives can't be green, but a conservative party should be green, green in a distinctively conservative way and I think there's a much more sort of local and practical environmentalism about looking after your local environment rather than trying to change the world um, and Cameron I think I'm going to now live up to the reputation you gave me when you introduced me but um, Cameron for me has tried to change the conservative brand and greenery is one of the big ways that he has tried to do it but I think he has tried to change the brand without ever really understanding what the problem with the brand was in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I think he decided that conservatism was too right-wing and too old-fashioned, and therefore he embraced lots of, well, I think, a metropolitan kind of liberal understandings of it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going wrong. And actually, the fundamental problem with conservatism of uh, modern times is that it's seen as a party of the rich mm -hmm. and the established big business and the city and et cetera, et cetera. And we recently did some polling with YouGov and, you know, Cameron hasn't shifted any of that. In fact, it's been, been reinforced because if you do not have a uh, potent explanation of what conservatism is, and I do not think David Cameron does have a potent explanation of what conservatism is, you are defined by things that people do understand, like cuts. And so the Conservative Party is, is, is being... Uh, retoxified um, by, its own, um, by its own failure to actually attack its big issue, which is that it must become the, guy, the party of the little guy, the small platoon, the institutions uh, that uh, stand up to big business and big government and, and big media. Okay, thanks. Uh, James, should we be in any way bothered that the Conservative establishment has demised? Should we, should we care? Well, yes. I think not in a uh, gerrymedist kind of uh, way, but insofar as what I think Tim describes as important aspects of, of what he sees as the future of conservatism, I think actually might be good things worthy to be the, the, the content of a future conservatism. I mean, I was 
quite excited about the Big Society project. I think uh, Tim's idea of increasing uh, community autonomy and individual autonomy of uh, allowing people to run their family, of, of the significance of, of education, of individual responsibility. I, I think this is what the whole rhetoric was about. I think the difficulty is that, that actually, in the absence of a real belief in individual autonomy, in the absence of a real belief in the possibility of, of individuals organising their lives, uh, uh, a recognition of the importance of the kind of spontaneous character of uh, community relationships and all of those things, which I don't think is there. I don't think it was there, you know, under Labour. Uh, I don't think it's there now under the Conservative government, and I don't think there's an awful lot of belief in that, although there is at a slightly abstract level. In a sense, it doesn't really matter whether what we've got is the state's grand project of trying to solve social ills or the state factoring out to the quasi-state third sector and therefore the grand project of third sector social reform, which equally involves uh, uh, an awful lot of bureaucratisation, but also involves an awful lot of intervention and bureaucratic control and regulation within people's lives. One quick example, just because I, I, I plucked out uh, um, uh, the issue of the family, because I, I think the discussion of the family is, is quite an important one. For straightforward reasons, Conservatives support the family, think the family is a good institution, think the family is an important institution. And I, I quote Tim on this, any political movement, this was in your response to the riots, any political movement that is relaxed about the structure of the family will produce the amoral youths that rioted last week. Perfectly straightforward that Conservatives would think a strong nuclear family is morally a hugely important foundation to a decent society, to the way people were brought up. But then we move to Ian Duncan Smith's Centre for Social Justice and his uh, summary of why the family is so important and of why uh, Britain's record on uh, family breakdown, currently the worst in Europe, uh, he tells us in, in the preface to one of his reports, uh, should be of concern to us. And it's because healthy marriages build healthy families, healthy families build a healthy society. So far, so good. The evidence shows that children who grow up in lone parent families are 70% more likely to fail at school, 70% more likely to be a drug addict, 50% more likely to develop an alcohol problem, and 40% more likely to have serious personal debt problems. On average, half of all cohabiting couples will break up by their child's fifth birthday, compared to only one in 12 married couples. What is interesting is there, I think, is that while you still have a concern about the family, what you have is a very instrumentalised model of the family and why the family might be important. And also almost an immediate recognition that given that this is the status of people's personal lives, of their family lives, of the way they're failing to bring up children, what people need is an awful lot more support, an awful lot more intervention, an awful lot more education about how to get on with things. And I don't see that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that there's much of a Rizzler's Papers difference between the question of whether the state comes in to educate people and their families, or whether the quasi-state third sector comes in to educate people and their families. Both actually inhibit that autonomy and independence and all of those kinds of things. Okay, thanks, James. That's really useful. Um, Greg, is there anything you just want to add to what you've heard on the panel? Yeah, to some extent, I feel I'm, I'm in a flying saucer because the conversation about some of these issues are similar in Australia, but, again, uh, so far apart. I mean, we have... Uh, I talked earlier on about... Um, similarity of the parties on economic issues, on, on some of the social issues that we talked about here. Uh, the Liberal Party, which is the Conservative Party, which is in coalition with the National Party, which is a rural Conservative <laughs> Party, um, does take, for example, the family as a, as a very key part of a thing. And so under the Howard government, and Howard was Prime Minister for 11 years or whatever it was, 
they put, put a lot of effort into uh, setting up uh, funding mechanisms to ensure that families stay together and da 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 da. Well, of course, now that's become a big issue of middle class welfare. Mostly it's not needed. Uh, the, the, the family structures in Australia are better than most places. People have children. They, you know, we don't have a demographic problem, la, la, la. The Labor Party, on the other hand now, which is the most unpopular government we've had in my lifetime, I think, is now seen as the uh, government of metropolitan elites. Uh, somebody used that term down here. And uh, you know, they're only kept in power because of Greens and independents who are pursuing their own sorts of agendas, and, the, and this Labor Party government has had to, uh, had to give in too much to them. But it's, now you've got a point where the opposition, which is the Liberal Party, is seen as the, the party of the working man, of the small, the small entrepreneur. Uh, their, their support uh, electorally is like 70%, whereas the opposition, uh, sorry, the government, uh, I mean, if there's an election held tomorrow, they'd be wiped out. The, the, uh, I think Steve asked me a question earlier on about... Uh, a tradition of sort of social conservatism going back into the 50s when, when I was growing up and it, it was a Catholic social conservatism. Uh, what, uh, how is that seen today? And I said, well, that was, in fact, one of the, 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 the man who inspired that movement was, in fact, all right, uh, the, uh, uh, one of the great uh, heroes of the current opposition leader. So, you know, we're going through an interesting realignment of, uh, of ide ideology but with a lot of practical stuff underneath it, so I'll stop at that point. Okay, thanks very much. Can we give the panel a round of applause, please? Okay, now it's your opportunity to ask questions. I'm going to take, uh, yeah, the gentleman there. And one of the strengths of conservatism has traditionally been um, ruling through consent, or at least an attempt to rule through consent. And my question really to the panellists is, do you think that that's still the case? Well, I'm involved in education, um, and one of the issues in education I think that's interesting is that I'm generally from, the, well, I'm from the left, but I'm generally reasonably on message with, with Gove's attempt to do many of the things that he's doing. Um, but rather than attempting to win an argument in society around the issues that he's raising, um, in a way what he tends to do, or what the Conservative Party are, are attempting to do, is to avoid responsibility for a political fight, um, rather than having that battle with, either within his own party or indeed in wider society. And I think, actually, there will be a lot of resonance for many of the ideas over, certainly, secondary education with many people in society. Everybody who has children realises there's an issue with schools, moving, postcode lottery, where you live, etc. Many of the teachers involved in education would be actually very open to these ideas. But rather than having that, if you like, I hesitate to say ideological fight, but rather than having that argument and then changing things through an attempt to build consensus, it's outsourcing responsibility for that fight elsewhere to either celebrity individuals or people with a particular different agenda. And so the question is, do, you, do conservatives still want to rule through consensus, have the ability to do that, or would you rather outsource that responsibility to other people? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to... I'm, I'm aware that there has been a, um, a call for conservatism to defend capitalism. And um, what I'm picking up from here, and this um, conservatism as a sort of reaction against modernity, has it, has it therefore, have, has it joined the anti-capitalist camp? Where will the political leadership it, within conservatism, uh, where does it come from, to actually take society uh, forward at a time of extreme crisis, economic crisis, and uh, what would the future be under conservatism? 
it seems to me that we've seen both the decline and the rise of conservatism at the same time, which is strange. Um, on, on the one hand, we're all conservatives, it seems to me, or a lot of us at least. Um, there's no real progressive movement that's, that's worthy of the name against which conservatives might react. There's no clash of ideas um, as, as there was in, in, in previous years. But at the same time, there's a lot of social pessimism around, a lot of fear of change, risk-taking, uh, and at the same time, uh, environmentalism, which is traditionally a conservative idea, uh, and localism. Um, as Tim said, these are very current trends, and across the political spectrum, these are the sorts of ideas that are very much in vogue. So uh, how do we explain that apparent contradiction? Okay, thank you very much. The gentleman with the glasses there. Thanks. Um, I, 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 was, uh, I was interested uh, in the... Uh, my, my curiosity was piqued by the, by the point made in, about the, uh, the ideas of, of transparency so people can have a greater sense of what's going on in their communities. I mean, that strikes me as not a, not a terribly conservative uh, thing to say. Presumably, people should just have deference uh, with regard to these institutions and not need um, them to be transparent. There should be an element of, of trust there, um, which, which I, I think uh, brings up a point which I think... Um, both Tim and, and, and uh, Jim Panton have, have kind of uh, brought up, which is this, the, the fact that, in a sense, conservatism is impossible today because it's overly neoliberalized, in a sense. It's overly instrumentalized and still driven to introduce markets and pseudo-markets into, into institutions, which ends up hollowing out those very institutions and is also the, market, the endorsement of a kind of neoliberal market ideology, in some senses, um, ends up atomizing frag and fragmenting uh, society and communities Further, So, in a sense, just as a kind of open question to the panel, I'd be interested in, in hearing your thoughts about whether, if there's to be a future for, for conservatism, it's to be a, a sort of new conservatism which um, abandons many of its, um, many of its more pro-market um, positions uh, for, it to, for it to truly have a future. Hi. Yes, um, I'm interested in pursuing the discussion about individualism a bit more because I was really interested in a couple of things that uh, James was saying, which is about the real decline of the Conservative Party at, at the local level. I mean, that's a really dramatic figure when you think about, you know, sort of, uh, was it 20 years ago, it was 70 members down to now 10 members. I mean, that's potentially devastating. And I think, uh, you know, I've been thinking about what does that mean in terms of the way people think about politics. And obviously it does mean a real detachment from politics. And, and then I think, well, what does that mean? What, what does that kind of detachment from politics mean? And the, the question of then individual, the idea of autonomy, an individual autonomy, where actually what, when you become involved in politics, it's because you think that you can affect the way the world is going. And the way the world is going, you, you sort of, um, you recognize that you can't do that on your own, but as an individual, you've got to work with other people, so you join a party. If you abandon that party you basically decide that that actually is no longer an option, but you also at some level then give up on the idea of individual autonomy. And then the party responds to that by becoming increasingly bureaucratic in its measures and in itself losing that faith of individual autonomy. And so I think one of the big tasks of any party today is how do you re-engage people, individuals, in a sense that they can change the world and to what extent measures that, you know, this idea of the law of un unintended consequences, that the more measures you put in place, say, around the family or whatever, actually then acts to undermine that individual autonomy. So I, I, I'm posing a conundrum, 
But I think the basic problem comes down to this thing about uh, having faith in the individual and people's capacity to um, engage in politics and how do you sort of start to re-engage with that intellectually or ideologically and with a sense of vision. And that's not what I, I'm not getting from that at all from any of the speakers. That there's a, it's almost like everybody's in this state of, oh, um, you know, we're in a state of flux and change and chaos and everything like that. And almost all you're posing is a sort of sense of a number of bureaucratic measures without any sense of what society could be like if we all engaged in a, a, a real debate about that. Okay, thanks very much. So, a number of questions about consent. I just want to bring the panel in briefly. So, a number of questions about issue of consent, autonomy. Is, is conservatism still obsessed with the market? And the point made over here that we all seem to be, we all seem to be conservatives now in some form. So, um, just going to bring the panelists back in. They don't have to respond to everything. So, if you just want to pick out anything from what the speakers of what the audience have said, uh, by all means, do so. So, Stephen. Okay. Uh, well, there's actually, I think, the five questions, there's actually three points come out of them, so I'll take the three points. One of them is the question of political agency, basically, the degree to which individuals have any kind of a effective agency in the modern world, given the decline of politics and the decline of political discourse and argument. I think this is where historical perspective comes in useful. Mass political parties do not exist, really, before the 1880s. Uh, and their great golden ages in the middle decades of the 20th century. Now, what has undermined them in the last 30 years and undermined the kinds of political agency that we've had in the past, the political discussion we've had in the past, in my view, is, is the electronic mass media, above all television. Uh, however, I think it's very dangerous to think that the way things are at the moment is the way they've got to go on forever. Uh, I actually think that, in fact, the age of television is drawing to a close uh, in various ways and that the kind of mass television politics and mass television culture that we've had since roughly the early 1970s in this country is actually beginning to wind down for a number of reasons. Uh, and I think we're going to see different forms of agency. Now, it won't take the form of uh, traditional mass parties, I think. It'll be something much more fluid. But I think, in fact, that we are going to see a revival of uh, agency in the future. Two of the questions basically raise the question of the relationship between conservatism and capitalism. Uh, this is a big question. And I think there's no necessary historical connection at all between conservatism and capitalism. And in fact, there is a lot of historical tensions between it. I think it's quite likely that what we're going to see is the emergence of a kind of politics, I think we are seeing it emerging in fact, uh, which will combine, if you like, not exactly anti-capitalism, but resistance to certain aspects of modern capitalism. Uh, the articulation perhaps of a different model of what a market economy should look like, because the categories of market economy and capitalism are not the same thing. Capitalism is a particular kind of market economy. It's not the, so, for example, you can be a distributist. A distributist favours a market economy, quite certainly, but it's not a capitalist market economy as we would generally understand it. So I think there's quite likely to be a significant move in that direction. As to why there should be generalised conservatism, I think this is quite right. This is part of the realignment uh, I was alluding to. Uh, on the right, you have uh, some people who think that basically global free markets are undermining stable, settled communities, but you've also got a strong reaction against change on the left, mainly because change is not seen as going in the direction that they want it to. So I think we're going to see a much more sort of big split. Virginia Postrel, I think, many years ago, about 10, 12 years ago now, said it was a split between stasists, as she called them, who fear the kind of way that the world is changing and dynamists, and I think that's what's happening. Okay, thanks very much. Greg? Yeah, just a few points. I mean, I think the... the participation in politics is maybe people feel that there's no point anymore and uh, and they can get so much of what they uh, they were were seeking by joining parties. I mean, the, this phenomenon is the same everywhere. I mean, uh, Putnam wrote a, 
about it in his uh, bowling alone. I mean, it's people can get their their social interaction in different ways, and I suppose with the, with the sort of development development of technology and social media, that's all part of it, and maybe that's part of the real alignment that you're talking about. Um, I mean, I, the, 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 the biggest political party in Australia is the one that used to be called the Country Party, which is now called the National Party, because there's probably not much else to do out in the bush. Um, so, so, uh, and maybe there's inter interest to defend, but, but uh, I think it's just a function of, of change and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, you talked, someone up there talked about the market and neoliberalism. Look, the market is a social institution. Uh, Steve's quite right. I mean, capitalism uh, is sort of a version of it. Uh, it depends on institutions being put in place, uh, place properly and that's, you know, these things evolve and in our country they've evolved pretty well and uh, those tensions don't seem to be there except on the fringes. So, you know, I, I don't want to go on forever but, I, but uh, you better get to someone else, I think. Okay, thanks. Kieran. I think there are a couple of points, there's a couple of points I'd like to make. The, the first was there was a couple of questions really about... Uh, Reinventing conservatism is kind of anti-capitalist, anti-sort of your, your point and uh, your point over there. And I think this is this is a perfectly reasonable point to make because large top-down change that conservatives are worried about is not just doesn't just come from the public sector; it comes from the private sector as well. I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is is Facebook, or as I like to call it, bloody Facebook, <laughs> which um, has had a number of. of, of uh, I mean, it's been an incredibly useful tool, of course, for putting people together and connecting people, which is no bad thing. But it's had a couple of pretty bad effects. One is, I worry about a world where to unfriend somebody is as simple as friending them. What do we think about friendship in a world like that? Also, Facebook has radically changed our ideas about privacy and the private space and the private sphere in ways that we might uh, worry about. Another example of, pri of private sector change is, of course, the banks and their, their brilliant ideas and their brilliant innovative ways of divorcing uh, risk and profit uh, uh, have, of course, resulted in uh, a world where too many risks were being taken and uh, not enough done about preventing them from happening. So, you know, th this is not something... I mean, I don't see the conservative, conservatism as an anti-capitalist force. However, we would be kind of looking towards the sort of uh, 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 measured capitalism that Adam Smith talked about that we get in works by uh, Amar Bide, for example, a call for judgment, or Gervais Williams' uh, slow finance, rather than amazing sort of big, uh, big bang, uh, whiz-bang uh, capitalist instruments like credit default swaps, which, of course, so much... So much Problem. The other point I must just make, you, you, you mustn't confuse privatizing stuff via the transparency program with setting up a market, right? You talk to any kind of local campaigner for you know, someone who, who is trying to set up a website to keep uh, crime down in his region, right? He's not setting up any products. He's not monetizing any services, but he's creating services that people can use. Police.uk is a fantastic uh, site to enable people to understand crime in their community and how the police uh, and how to uh, work with the police to prevent that happening. These tools are nothing to do with free markets. It's just that they're under the control of people uh, who are not central government, which seems to me like a, a, a good thing. So let's not confuse transparency with simply kind of just neoliberalism. Let's get a, a market in, in information. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, James. 
Well, I mean, just on that point, I, I think also it's important not to confuse what I was trying to suggest about instrumentalism and managerialism with just neoliberalism. There may be aspects of one that lead to the other, but in terms of looking at uh, increasing levels of instrumentalism, I, I, I think that touches on this question of this, this radical decline of party politics. And I don't think it has uh, a great deal to do with television or, or, or internet or, or technology or things like that. I don't think those kind of technical features can explain uh, why people are not engaging in party politics because it's not clear why one would choose to watch television rather than go to a political meeting if there was an important political meeting going on. I mean, that's where the explanation for me falls down. What I do think, though, is that the, the kind of erosion of those political principles and sense of social vision, whether that be some future-oriented progressive transformative vision or whether that be uh, a sense of the moral imperative to maintain and preserve certain kinds of social structures, uh, certain kinds of social authority. The decline and the emptying, emptying out of politics in that form is, is what, for me, explains why people are not very likely to be very interested in being a member of the local Conservative uh, Association or Labour Association. This is not a Conservative phenomenon, this is a political phenomenon. But in that sense, I, I, I think on the question of what the future of politics might look like, I don't think there's necessarily any reason at all to think that it would come from political parties as, as they currently exist, because precisely the kind of things that seem to me important about building a future for politics, and actually lots of things that Tim has suggested about what might be important, although it's not clear to me that the, the kind of Cameron project is doing that, but uh, it would be about people taking a bit more control of their lives and their communities, deciding what they want, all of these kinds of things. And that might well suggest the building up of very new kinds of political institutions and political organisations through which people would want to express and organise their ideas. I think just the final thing, that this issue of rule by consent is uh, quite an interesting one because, again, I, I think what that's dovetailing into is that notion of thinking that one could win consent by having certain kinds of principled arguments and thinking that certain kinds of principles, uh, policies, ideas, values, judgments are hugely important to a better society uh, or to maintaining a decent kind of society. So I think, again, it's, it's the absence of any uh, real sense of that, of what it is that we should defend or what it is that we should transform that actually leads to a, a far more... Uh, instrumentalist approach and I think there you see that being writ large very clearly in, in the whole kind of nudging discussion uh, uh, for me is, is very obvious rather than thinking that, that, that you can win autonomous individuals <coughs> over by argument we can nudge them in the right direction by finding ways of uh, circumventing their rational processes and appealing to other uh, instincts and I think conservatism historically has always had that potential tendency has always had that kind of paternalistic sense but that was always mediated by a belief in the importance of what Tim described as, as that moral sphere that civic social sphere that the state must not intervene in but I think again the collapse of that sphere and therefore the collapse of any breakdown is actually what leads to the possibility of thinking well nudging is a good idea but underpinning all of that is, is, is a you know very uh, limited sense of individuals as autonomous actors and on the other side a very limited sense of arguments and ideas and principles as the means by which we actually engage each other politically. Okay, thanks very much. Tim, anything to add on what's been said? I, 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 I just want to focus on this idea of uh, conservatism's relationship with capitalism and whether we are about uh, or should distance ourselves from capitalism or not. 
I began by saying that one of the things I think Conservatives most needed to change on was their attitude to government, to be more in favour that government does have an important role in society. And the, the other big change that I think the Conservatives uh, need to make is that they need to be more optimistic, more Matt Ridley in their view of the world, in the sense is that um, even though capitalism is going through difficulties now, you know, most of the world is getting richer, healthier, and more technologically advanced as fast as it has in any time in human history. So we shouldn't, you know, I would much rather live now than at any time in human history. And I'm sure in 10 years' time, I'd much rather live then. And so we shouldn't exaggerate the, the problems. But there are problems. There are significant problems. And it's not, in terms of what, whether conservatism should be close to capitalism or uh, further apart from capitalism, we need to ask the what is capitalism question. And if it's crony capitalism, where banks are bailed out so that bank shareholders get the profits in the good times but the taxpayers pick up the losses in the bad times, no. If it's kind of a rigged energy market where the barriers to entry for small firms are so big, no. Um, but where we have a competitive capitalism, um, a creative capitalism, the capitalism of you know, Steve Jobs, if you like, uh, the capitalism of the small firm, then no. And our solution to capitalism's problems must be more competition to turbocharge capitalism because at the moment it has, uh, it has become too close. Lots of capitalism is actually big business. It's very close to government and it uses its relationship with government to win subsidies, to win barriers to entry, to uh, get the kind of red tape and compliance costs that it, it can easily absorb that stops any small firms entering the the market. And just finally, the, 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 the first guy who asked the question about Michael Gove and delegating debate and uh, argument. Um, one thing that I think is hugely missing from uh, conservatism is a great argument. Is it, and this, I think, is, you know, I'm straying into the Conservative Party now at the moment, but there are some real ills in our society. And if you go into a doctor and you're very unwell and the doctor gives you a uh, paracetamol, it's not what you want and I think this government is trying to reassure people too much when actually it should be confronting them with the reality of the, the sickness um, and say it's going to be painful and the convalescence is going to last this long but if we do these things in 10 years time this economy will be well and at the moment the government isn't entering in that kind of debate it has lots of small ideas that add up to the mishmash that I think um, Greg was talking about earlier, where all the parties look essentially the same. What we need is a big argument about reinventing British capitalism so that it can survive in the world where debt, the Eurozone and China pose some of the greatest challenges that uh, we have faced for a very long time. Okay, thanks very much. Um, before I hand over to um, the audience again, I just want to say uh, a couple of things, first of all. At the beginning of the introduction, I was trying to gets us to think about how conservatism fits into a broader sense of changes that are taking place in society. Because obviously, collapse of social democracy, which is the next session, kind of goes hand in hand with the collapse of conservatism as well. And equally, the mainstream uh, centrepiece of feminist ideas and values is also goes hand in hand with the decline of conservatism as well. I mean, it's often said that conservatism won the economic argument, but it lost the culture war that it lost many of the arguments around social equality, that it lost many of the arguments around the family uh, and so forth. But I think what I'd like to pose, I mean, I think this is where 
we are looking at conservatism, is the alternative that much better? You know, uh, Tim mentioned about liberal metropolitan elite values. Uh, are they really that much better than the old establishment conservative values that we were familiar with in the past? And it seems to me that the, the, the kind of new values that have replaced old conservative establishment values seem as equally as restrictive uh, and equally diminishing uh, as the kind of the worst aspects of conservatism. But that's just something to think of. If you want to come back on that, or if you want to raise any of the questions, uh, now's your opportunity. So I can see a show of hands who would like to speak. Yeah, my question. I have two questions. Qu very quick question um, to Kieran about Facebook um, and privacy. Um, I've been asked my Twitter feed to ask you, it had to what extent is that a historical aberration, the idea of privacy? The second question is, when everyone's talking about, um, you know, small businesses and uh, sort of giving autonomy to um, sort of communities, um, sort of the idea of a Goldilocks government trying to take that off people. The, I'm a classical, uh, classical, classical liberal in the sort of um, John Stuart Mill sense. This is something awfully non-conservative to me and awfully sort of Wigan and radical and liberal. And I just wondered how you'd respond to that. I mean, are you, do you feel that it's sort of, radical today to be a, a conservative, given that obviously what you're, what the sort of left is coming up with, as you've been talking about, is issues about sort of breaking down a lot of things, or there's a lot, there isn't much to break down anymore. Yes, I would like to change a bit the question that is here is, can conservatism survive the 21st century? My question coming from a Latin American country would be, can conservatism have a chance, for example, in countries like Venezuela, which is my case, that some of us strange people have this kind of ideas and try to articulate a speech that people could feel to understand and to try to diminish the centralized socialist kind of discourse we have in our countries. So is there a chance for it? Can I be optimistic or not that much? I, um, I, I was interested in the introductions, particularly the, um, the historical context that Steve put forward, which I think was, was very interesting. But uh, one of the things that uh, I've always identified conservative, uh, always identified conservatism with is a sense of organic community. And that discourse of community is, I think, is, is very much in the air. It's you know, very much part of the Blue Labour project. But I'm interested in the nature of that community and, indeed, the ties that, that do bind us together. It, it seems to me a lot of the assumptions of, um, if I can use this word, traditional conservatism, particularly in Britain, worked on a fairly homogenous society that was religiously, ethnically, nationally homogenous in in, in many senses, it wasn't very difficult to bind that sort of society together. But, but obviously the idea of it being a reaction to uh, modernity and, and is when the forces of change seem to, to threaten that. Now, I wonder whether that attempt to regain some sort of sense of an organic community is, is, is viable and whether in a way that the, the building blocks of that type of conservatism just don't exist anymore. In other words, it, it really does have to invent itself or to, 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 to go in a much more liberal direction. And, and if it doesn't, then it will become mere reaction. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, my question is, given the link between conservatism and free market economics, how conservatism could distinguish itself or distance itself from freedmanism and Chicago School of Economics and how it's possible to sort of change people's perceptions, especially um, in Latin America, countries such as Peru, Pinochet, Chile. 
how it would do that and if that's possible to distinguish and educate the um, public at large the, diff the differences between conservatism and um, freedom of economics. Okay, yeah, interesting question. It's been really useful to hear your views uh, around uh, sort of conservatism and the party and outside of the party. Uh, and uh, just because it's quite important to me to get this question sort of answered, and, and the lady over there in the brown sort of addressed uh, some of the issues very clearly. So I don't want to escape this session without some of you trying to answer the question about... Uh, it's really a powerful thing in terms of the sessions I went to yesterday and that I'm trying to grapple with, where it feels like politically citizens are quite disorientated. It's not just institutions. Uh, and we've got a political uh, vacuum where people don't feel empowered to uh, try to sort of um, create a society uh, in a positive way. Well, most institutions within England, certainly, in my experience, is the, uh, are quite crisis-ridden at the moment. And when it comes to issues around uh, sort of public service and delivery around that, the big uh, society sort of uh, project... Uh, doesn't seem to be a solution to the problem to me because it's quite bureaucratic. So uh, I'd like you to sort of address the question about autonomy and how, as Conservatives, you view that right now and how we can regenerate a political uh, purpose uh, with citizens. Um, one of the problems I've always had and one of the objections I've always had to Conservatism is actually its uh, hostility, in my perceptions, to ordinary people genuinely taking control of society. So in the 20th century, many of the mass movements came from ordinary people wanting to change society, and conservatism, in my experience, was generally hostile to that. And as some of the speakers have mentioned, hostility of big projects and what have you. So, and I see that continuing, actually, as a strand of that, in, as some people have said, in relation to Cameron's Conservative Party, the nudging projects, the kind of uh, flirting with increased regulation of alcohol prices, etc., etc., still seems to me to be a continuation of that distrust of ordinary people actually regulating their lives. So my question is, is there a conservatism that can genuinely uh, respect the autonomy of ordinary people? Okay, I'm bringing back the panel in, I think this question of autonomy and whether the conservatives can actually uh, renew autonomy in society seems to be a theme that's coming through. So, I'd like to come back on any of the points, but also begin to answer the question. So, Stephen. Very quick, I think there's a hope for this kind of politics in conservative or you might call liberal in more general term politics in Latin America. I don't see any reason why you should give up hope there, basically. How do you... Is it the case that conservatives are historically suspicious of um, individual autonomy and agency? In other words, is it true what Gladstone said about the difference between liberalism and conservatism? It's true for some kinds of conservatives, certainly. Now... To answer the specific question that um, was raised about uh, how can conservatism as a political project, if you will, or an ideological movement distinguish itself from certain kinds of free market economics, well, uh, speaking as a supporter of that kind of economics, there are two ways you could go, really. Um, one is for a revival of a kind of nationalistic, uh, paternalist in many ways, uh, protectionist, anti-market uh, form of conservatism. I think that's quite possible. Uh, that, that is a political form of conservatism I think could very easily appear in many places. The other is the more kind of radical free market approach that Tim uh, was talking about earlier on, uh, where in fact what you attack is the, uh, if you like, the, I think the capture of uh, free markets by privileged interest groups who then use the political power of the 
system to favour themselves. Uh, as to how, finally, very quickly, how you can uh, affect agency at the local level, I think that one of the problems is to think of uh, the big society or whatever you want to call this project as being about charity, when in fact the whole emphasis should be upon mutual aid and collective cooperation. Uh, and there's all kinds of historical models we could draw on for that, I think, but they all need to be rediscovered, I'm afraid. Okay, thank you. Greg? Uh, I think I'd agree with what Steve was saying. Just a, a, the, the lady, somebody commented on Facebook, and I think Kieran, I think the, uh, thinking about that sort of technology, given it's only been around for five years, is too small a slice of history. I think we, we need, it will evolve, and the way we use it, whether it's, uh, and whether it affects privacy or, or whatever it does, whether you, you can unfriend someone or make a friend instantly, is something that it's, it's a phase we're going through, and I think that just let it evolve, and I suspect what we will find, that in terms of participation or autonomy of people in a wider set of communities, um, that sort of technology and whatever replaces it will facilitate that in ways that we just don't know. Okay, thank you. Kieran, what's your Facebook status? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, just to answer the direct question I was asked, is privacy an historical aberration? Well, in one sense, everything's an historical aberration. But the point is, you know, for, for 200 years we've, we've had privacy uh, uh, rules which protect us in various ways. And not only uh, uh, the, the rules, but also the technology. So in, in a, a paper filing cabinet days, actually getting information from A to B was really hard. Uh, now it's much easier, so it's much more important, I think, to defend privacy because it still plays an enormous role in our lives. To answer, so, so yeah, the, the point was, has been raised about autonomy and uh, you also raised the question about radical liberalism. Um, you can't have it both ways. You know, uh, if we give people autonomy, which I think we should, and we have, do have, then have to respect the fact that they will make the wrong decisions, so you shouldn't be nudging them in particular directions. We should be empowering communities... We've, we've heard, you know, I've heard uh, somebody else talked about the distrust of ordinary people, I think, gentleman at the back. Uh, someone talked about disorientation and uh, disempowerment to uh, uh, someone over there. Um, absolutely right. I think this is what one really good thing that the government is doing via the transparency programme through the Cabinet Office is actually empowering small communities to do things, not for ideological reasons, not for class-driven reasons, just because they're the best people, the people best equipped to make decisions for themselves. So that kind of devolvement of power, I think, is a very conservative idea. It's not a conservative idea to hoard power at the centre and, and dispense largesse uh, willy-nilly. The conservative idea is let's get power out there. Uh, free markets were one uh, way of doing that. Uh, another way, thanks to new technology, and Facebook has played its part in, in this revolution, thanks to new technology, uh, we can get data out to people who then can manage their own communities better. Uh, that is our, that, to my mind, that is the future of political engagement, way beyond uh, any capability that a mass political party could do in this uh, very, uh, um, very agile, very uh, uh, technologically driven age. Okay, Tim, would you give a thumbs up like to that comment? <laughs> if there anything else you want to come back on? Uh, well, well I, I want to address the, uh, the lady's point about uh, the, the distrust and unhappiness with institutions and whether this government is doing anything uh, about it. You know, it's not going to happen overnight, but I do think the big society is a significant attempt to uh, give people a sense of uh, empowerment. And it's been a big uh, marketing failure that it's become associated only with voluntary organisations and, and charities. But it, it is meant to be about things like you know, local government will 
because the localism bill have the capacity to choose to do anything it wants. You know, if it wants to set up a local bank to serve the community or whatever, you know, it will be able to do that. The old rules on its freedom of movement are, are gone. Uh, you know, setting up a free school. If you're a parent who's trapped in an area where there's never been good schools, there is now you know, mechanisms to help you set up your own school so that you can, you know, you're no longer reliant on the LEA. Uh, the police... Now, all of us who worried about police tactics, you know, during the London riots, the, the move to elected police chiefs will begin to ensure that we have new models of how the how police services are provided. So I could go on and I'll be hit by the chairman. But, um, uh, you know, I think there are lots of things that the government is doing. Transparency is another one. Uh, transparency means that we finally see whether these institutions are serving us in a way that they purport to rather than how... Um, rather than what is actually true. Okay, thank you. Um, Sorry, can I just do one other thing? The the question about Venezuela and the Chicago school. Um, I think the key thing that conservatives need to do, and I'm not familiar with Latin America, but I think the key thing what conservatives need to do to succeed generally is to differentiate themselves from the Chicago school. And that people don't just want freedom. It's one of the great things that I regret about whenever I talk to young conservatives, they define their conservatism as individual freedom. And actually, people are as much wanting belonging and community and security as they are wanting freedom. Freedom is part of the mix. And if the choice is between a socialist party that says we'll look after you and a libertarian party says that we will help you to be on your own, people are going to choose the socialist party. And it's for the conservative party to be that party of... uh, of social care rather than just state care. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, James, you talked previously about autonomy. Could you tackle this question about perhaps a a problem that Conservatives face is that historically they've never really trusted ordinary people? What what do you think? They've never been interested in ordinary people. They've never really trusted ordinary people to make decisions. I I mean, I think that's true. I I, I think it's kind of um, accidental that Conservatism has tended to support uh, uh, autonomy precisely because it has supported restrictions upon the state sector and it has supported uh, the importance of moral communities and of organic communities. And and in a sense, insofar as autonomous individualism develops within those contexts and is free of state control and state intervention, then in that sense, conservatism has, at periods in its history, been quite supportive of autonomy. It's also the case, and and what uh, Kieran and Tim have both said, I I think leads quite nicely to where I would differentiate myself from conservatives and and, and be far more radical in my liberalism, although not individualistic or lonely, uh, (laughs) uh, if I can be that complicated. Um, Which is to say that I I, I think, you know, autonomy, contrary to what uh, Kieran said, is is, is not something that can be given. By definition, you can't give people autonomy. Uh, People assert their autonomy. People uh, take... Uh, their autonomy, act autonomously in their lives, and cultures can be more or less supportive of that kind of action. But it's not something that we can uh, give. And further, autonomy does precisely mean the freedom to make mistakes, to screw up your life, but uh, 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 an autonomous culture or society that that values autonomy is also one that doesn't want to nudge people in the right direction because we recognise that they've done things wrong, because it actually thinks people might have some role in deciding for themselves what's right and what's wrong. And therefore, I've got nothing against, in, in, in my you know, friendly uh, liberal society, you telling me what you think I'm doing wrong. I've got everything against uh, the state or government nudging me in the direction that it thinks is wrong. They're entirely different 
uh, understandings of, of autonomy and community and all of those kind of things. And I don't think you can build any kind of community other than on the basis of autonomous individuals. So let's see if we can address the question, can conservatism survive? Stephen. Well, um, I think the, the obvious sort of conclusion is yes, it can, because I think there's always going to be some kind of conservatism in the modern world, essentially. Uh, the question really is, what form will it take? Uh, and I think there are essentially, there are two kinds of politics that current conservatism can develop into, and I think it will probably develop into both. One, a more consistent classical liberal one, if you will, uh, and the other, more the kind of thing that Tim's talking about, which I think will be one which values freedom, but which places it alongside other things particularly, and I think that's probably the one that will tend to succeed, actually. Thank you. Greg? Yeah, of course I can, but it's how it deals with sort of rapid change that I mentioned at the start of my presentation, and then I think that you can handle it if it is able to bring in some of those classical liberal um, basic rules that, 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 that has made some of the successful conservative communities survive, and that, uh, you know, that does mean markets, that does mean autonomy, that does mean freedom and so forth. So, yeah, it, it'll survive, but I can't tell you what it's going to be. Uh, ask me next year, so. Okay, thank you. Kieran? Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, conservatism will always change because the things we want to preserve and the things that give value in society will always change uh, uh, through time. So you, it's conservatism will have to adapt. Um, I think conservatism has two big, uh, big advantages, uh, really. One is that it's, we're, we're living in a, an age of very radical and very dynamic change, and any philosophy that helps anchor our social institutions in, in uh, a lived reality, I think, is very valuable. Uh, secondly, I think, um, you know, economically, we're going to go through a, probably a fairly long bear market fairly soon, probably uh, decades long. Um, conservatism is actually an extremely good uh, philosophy for negotiating uh, times when people are less optimistic. What's the problem with conservatism? Well, actually, uh, it's usually rather understated and usually rather pragmatic, so it doesn't make for very good headlines in, in a media-driven age. Uh, it's not great politics to be a conservative. Okay, thank you. James, can conservatism survive? No. I, I think on, on one level, a, a general conservative social sentiment can survive uh, an insecurity about change, an uncertainty about rationalistic politics, uh, 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 ideological politics even. I, I think on those levels, conservatism dominates at the present and uh, in the absence of anything significantly challenging, it will continue to dominate for some time. I think that's unfortunate, uh, personally. Uh, I think as a political force, no, I, I, I don't think conservatism uh, 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 exists in the present and I don't see it uh, being rejuvenated as a real political social force, precisely because I think that those aspects of conservatism that are there are not the basis of a political project. They're the basis of, of a certain kind of individuated uncertainty and, and insecurity, and, and for that reason, I think no. I think much of what many conservatives think would be important to uh, preserve, to conserve, to seek to reclaim in terms of gains of the past are very important things that lots of people, including myself, who I'm not a conservative, would also want to conserve and reclaim from the past. And, and in that sense, I, I think there is a future to much of what some conservatives at the moment are thinking, but I'm not so convinced that it will be a conservative future, if that makes sense. OK, thanks very much. Tim, as editor of Conservative Home, <laughs> your website last 21st century? Uh, well, I don't know about uh, the website, but conservatism. Um, 
Conservatism will survive, and I, I'm, I don't share some of the, 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 the pessimism of the, of the premise of this, because actually I think this is going to potentially be a golden period for conservatism, because I think that um, the big state and the big market have both failed. I think that the, the idea that uh, we can collectivize our solutions under the state and that the market alone and prosperity will deliver uh, progress has been tested to destruction in recent years, particularly in the area of poverty, where we've never had more wealth in a society, we've never spent more on welfare, but some of the most persistent forms of poverty have actually, have actually grown. And actually, I think the eternal truths of conservatism about a very, um, a very clear skills in education, a very strong uh, relationship networks, particularly around, around the family, and those rules I talked about earlier about not living beyond your means and relinking effort and reward. Actually, th I think these are going to be more relevant and more popular than, the, than they've ever been in an uncertain world. So, yes, yes, yes. Okay, a nice optimistic note to end on. And just to prove that we are not only putting conservatives under the spotlights, making them squirm in their seats, the next session of reassessing politics, we're going to be doing the same with social democracy. Can that survive the 21st century? Can we give our excellent panel a big round of applause? Thank you.